the question had been asked, why out of the hundred or so churches that were there by the year 96 AD, where the book of Revelation was written, uh, why only Jesus speaks to those seven churches? And through the years, there are all kinds of answers and all kinds of people have opinions about it. There are some who've said Jesus only speaking to those seven churches and only the seven churches and the message has no relevance to us. But the problem is this is negate the double blessing that comes from reading and heeding the book of Revelation. Then some people actually believe, and these great theologians, people that you and I would love and respect, and they said that the, church, the history of the church is divided into seven sections. And the way it's divided now, according to them, we are in the seventh, the time of the seventh church, which is the church of Laodicea, which was lukewarm and Jesus about to spit it out of his mouth. Now the truth is the word of God is rich enough and filled with many layers uh, of meanings. And therefore I believe that these seven letters uh, could be called the bifocal. A bifocal show you distance, but also close up. And these seven churches are representative of all the churches of Jesus Christ throughout the ages and through the history. Most of us probably been in churches like one of those described here. Now these seven churches, or these seven messages to the seven churches were written in the first century, but they are also written to the 21st century. Amen? In every age and in every part of the world, the church of Jesus Christ needs a message of conviction, needs a, a message of admonition, and it needs a message of exhortation. And yes, it needs a me- message of invitation that they might come back to the Lord. If a male man is delivering, he would go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now, there are many Christians and Christian pastors skip the seven churches. They really do. And they like to get to the, what I call the fireworks. <laughs> Where the stars are falling and the moon turning into blood and so forth. Well, we're going to get to the fireworks, trust me. But if you jump these messages and go to the fireworks, you miss out on ordering our lives today in the light of the life to come. And as you read Jesus' seven letters, you cannot help but see that they are representative of the churches today. Let's look at those very quickly, all seven of them. The first message is to the church of Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Ephesus was a great ancient city really was, was among the the important cities of the world. Ephesus was the center of wealth and commerce. Ephesus uh, had a population of well over 200,000 people, and that was big city by those days' standards. Uh, Ephesus boasted of having the temple of Diana of Artemis. Uh, In fact, Diana's temple was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. The Apostle Paul founded the church in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, he spent more time in Ephesus than any other of the churches he founded. He was there for a solid three years teaching. And John, the Apostle John, who lived much longer, over 30 years past 
Paul, he became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And that's where he lived. The Ephesian church was a home ministry, not only to Paul, but also Apollos and Timothy and Achilla and Priscilla. Uh, and Jesus begins his message to the Ephesian Christians by a word of commendation. What I love about the Lord is he finds something positive to say, and he says it first. But when he doesn't, he does not just make them feel good. <laughs> You'll see in some of the other messages, he had nothing good to say. So he starts by saying, I know your deeds. Beloved, listen, if I give you the description of those Christians, they were hardworking Christians. They've rejected false doctrine. They believed in accurate biblical interpretation. They were biblically sound. Uh, they believed the right doctrine. And they've rejected the work of a heretic by the name of Nicholas, which Jesus hated, that heresy, that impacted the other churches, and other churches embraced it, but not the church in Ephesus. They rejected it. Imagine loving something that Jesus hates. And these people rejected that false heresy. Uh, the early Christian father, Irenaeus, tells us what Nicholas and Nicolaitans Nicolaitian, uh, is, is all about. He, Irenaeus, the early Christian father, said, that Nicholas taught such a falsehood, just like those church-going folks who are promoting the Fifty Shades of Grey today, whether the book or the movie, misguided. Uh, Nicholas said that sexual sins would not affect your salvation, that sexual immorality does not affect your spiritual life. Uh, there were others uh, in other churches who fell uh, Line, hook, and sinker for that heresy, but not the church of Ephesus. They rejected it. And so you say, what a wonderful church. What else could Jesus expect from them? How can you get any better than this? Well, and yet there was one rebuke. Listen very carefully, please. I think this is a relevant message for us. We are people who believe the Scripture with accurate interpretation. We have rejected falsehood. We, we stand tall for the truth. Every one of us probably would say amen to that. But the problem with the church in Ephesus is that they loved their accurate biblical interpretations more than they loved Jesus. They have fallen in love with their good works, and they come out of love for Jesus. Now, you know Christians like that. Outwardly, they go through all the motions. Outwardly, they do all the right things. But they have a heart problem. They have a heart problem. And I'm not talking about the problem they need a cardiologist for, but it's a heart problem. They do the right things, not out of love for Jesus, but because they are trained to do the right things. Let me tell you what the great physician Concern about this heart condition. He's saying if you do the right thing and believe the right thing out of duty, not out of love for Jesus, sooner or later you're going through the motions. Bible study, the home groups, the church, and singing. You go through the motions. If your love for Jesus is cold, sooner or later your affection are going to be placed on somebody else or on something else. 
And there are five possibilities here that I want to share with you. Five possibilities will take place if you walk the Christian life and you're not passionately in love with Jesus. First is a compromise. You will begin to put one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Then there is complacency. Well, Jesus forgave my sins. I'm eternally saved. I can sin. I can live whichever way I want to live. Then there's coldness. God did not answer my prayer. The wanted answered. And you develop this cold love toward the Lord. There's complaining. And you think that God is not fair. How come after all you've done for him that you are really going through this valley? Or then you begin to crave the world, which is the fifth possibility. You crave success more than you crave Jesus. You crave wealth more than you crave Jesus. You crave power or luxury or whatever it is that your Achilles heals more than you love Jesus, more than you crave for Jesus. And so the great physician's prescription to the Ephesians, he said, retrace your steps. Get back a little bit. Find out where you lost your first love. What is the thing that tricked you? What is the thing that, that, that tripped you? Find out what went wrong and where. Where you have fallen out of love for Jesus. What is the thing that got you to come out of love for Jesus? What made your white hot love for Jesus become amber? Who replaced Jesus? As the object of your affection. And he said, not only confess it, but turn away from it. Now, beloved, listen to me very carefully, please. If you do not act soon, and if you do not act decisively, Jesus said he will remove the lampstand. He's not talking about salvation, but he will remove the lampstand. He will snuff out the light of your, God, of your witness. Uh, the light will no longer shine, even if you are going through the motions. Whatever passion you've got left for sharing Christ with others will die down. Let me plead with you. Let me plead with you. If you have lost your first love, and I know what I'm talking about. A few decades ago, I lost my, my love. I went through the motions until God's grace got me to repent. I plead with you, repent now. Repent today. Don't force God's hand to remove your lampstand. Don't force God's hand to extinguish your light. Don't force God's hand to dissolve your effectiveness for him. Love Jesus more than anything in life. Love Jesus more than loving the applause of men, love Jesus more than loving your opinion and your ideas and what you like and what you don't like. Love Jesus even more than loving the ministry. I have known people in ministry, they're more in love with ministry than they are in love with Jesus. 
I also know what that's like. For when you do that, Jesus will grant you to eat from the tree of life. He will reward you, and he will reward your faithful love for him in ways you will not be able to comprehend. The second message, the second message is to the believers in Smyrna. That's chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Now, all of you who live in Smyrna, give yourselves a hand. Because I want to tell you, (laughs) this type of Christian, this type of church is what I want to be. What I long for our church to be. Jesus gives them only encouragement, no condemnation, not one single negative word. Smyrna was the home of the shrine of Caesar. Smyrna's population stood before the statue of Caesar and they bowed to Caesar. The population worshipped Caesar, but the believers in Smyrna refused to bow to Caesar. The Christians in Smyrna said, only Jesus we worship. Only Jesus is Lord. The Christian Smyrna said, only Jesus is to be obeyed above Caesar. And the Christians in Smyrna said, no, Lord, but Jesus. Because they were in love with Jesus. The word Smyrna is a Greek word which actually means myrrh. Myrrh, you remember when the wise men came to the baby Jesus and they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's a reason for that. Ancient, in ancient times, Smyrna was the myrrh capital of the world. They sold it all over the globe. Myrrh is a fragrance that comes from breaking and crushing a thorn tree or a thorn bush. For the fragrance, fragrance of the myrrh to be released, it has to be broken. It has to be crushed. And when the wise men gave Jesus myrrh, it is because he was going to be crushed for our sin. And that is the only way the fragrance of God's forgiveness is released. Jesus' message to the church that has been crushed by persecution, that has been crushed for his sake. He said, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. God knows your suffering for him. God knows your sacrifices that you are making for him. And none of them is forgotten. None of them are overlooked. And God is the one who will reward you for your joyful endurance of that suffering. Jesus said to them, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Beloved, God has a word for the persecuted church. God has a word for the persecuted believers. God's word to the persecuted believer today is this. Don't be afraid. You have it tough now. You have it difficult now. But the day of your glorification is coming. The third letter... The third letter is to the church of Pergamum, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. 
The population of Pergamum was awash with strange religious practices. I mean, they were worshipping serpents in Pergamum. They were worshipping all kinds of strange idols. And Jesus said to them, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. What is Jesus talking about? Pergamum had the great altar dedicated to Zeus. And Zeus is the chief deity of the Greek Parthenon. And Jesus referring to that altar of Zeus when he was talking about Satan's throne. And so Jesus gives him a word of commendation. He said, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith altogether in me. Oh, but Jesus immediately goes in with a word of condemnation. Because they had one big, humongous sin that is creeping among them. You have people there in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. In one setting, read the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 31. But I'll tell you briefly so you, you, you keep up with me here. Balaam was a fortune teller. And so, before the people of God got into the promised land, a pagan king brought him in and he said, Now, Balaam, I want you to curse these people. And here is a bucket full of cash. I mean, he looks at that cash and he couldn't wait to go and curse God's people. There's a problem. While he got Satan on his side, the Israelites had Yahweh on their side. (laughs) Don't ever underestimate Yahweh. Things might look dark, but it's not going to be as dark forever. And so, every time he tries to open his mouth uh, to curse Israel, he blesses them. And the pagan king was, was frustrated. So he piles more cash and more cash. And Balaam sees the cash. He so let me try again. He will try again. And every time I open his mouth to, to curse the people of God, he blesses them. And finally, he came up with a devilish idea. He couldn't curse the people of God, but he can get the people of God to curse themselves. Because that's his devilish attack. If he cannot get you straight ahead, he will work on your flesh to get you to cause yourself a curse. Balaam was so blind, he couldn't see it. So much so that his donkey saw the angel, but he didn't. And the donkey rebuked him. Be careful when a donkey speaks to you. And so he goes to this pagan king. He said, you know, I I, I, I can get these people cursed themselves. Bring me out all you loose women. Just bring them out. And as soon as these Israelites men see your loose women, they're going to fall. And they did. And Satan says, mission accomplished. He succeeded just like he is succeeding today when trying to get so many of God's people hooked on pornography, on infidelity to their marriage vows, homosexuality, and sexual perversions of all kinds. And then there are some preachers somewhere say, well, you know, just, well, you have needs. I mean, you really, 
this is just the way you are. I mean, you can't help it. Well, these are the the way things are today. It's okay. Don't be narrow-minded. Surely don't be a prude. That's the situation in their church. Now, here's something many Christians in the 21st century have in common with the church, with the Christians in Pergamum. They were approval junkies. Let's all say it. Approval junkies. Many churches today, the approval junkies. They crave the approval of their pagan neighbors more than the approval of Jesus. Today, the cry of many a church in the evangelical arena is that in order to bring sinners inside the church, we have to accept and approve of their sin. Now, beloved, let me shoot straight with you. We are under obligation to love non-believers. We have no choice. We have no option but to love the non-believer, to minister to non to be available in every way. And I do that personally, as some of you know. We are under obligation to love sinners. We are under obligation in every way to, to be Christ to these people. But never, 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 never at the expense of biblical truth. Never under the compulsion of having them join a church without repentance and without salvation. And that is why Jesus said to the church at Pergamum, repent. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. Remember in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the true manna that comes from heaven. He's going to have nothing less than Jesus himself. So what is that white stone? You see, in the Roman judicial system, they did not have a trial by jury. They the judge tr- tries, adjudicates, and, and pronounces judgment all at the same time. So the judge was so powerful. And if the man being tried is guilty, he hands him a black stone. But if he is innocent or guiltless, he hands him a white stone. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. When we seek to please him and him alone... He will declare us innocent and set us free. He wants to see a desire, at least a desire. The fourth message, number four, the believers in Thyatira. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. This is the longest letter of all the seven, and probably the most troubling of all. As always, Jesus uses something positive, something good to say about every church. And he was praising them for some sterling qualities they have. Love, faith, service, and patient endurance. Something else Jesus said. The latter works exceed the first. Now look, growing in love and growing in faith and growing in service and patient endurance, wonderful. What else? This is a growing church. This is a mega evangelical contemporary church. It's a with it church. At that point, you expect Jesus said, attaboy, keep it up. Doing great. This is great. But sadly, he tells them 
that there is a cancer of moral compromise that is growing on the inside of them. Beloved, this is a sobering word. And I thank God we are a mega church. There are many wonderful mega churches, Bible believing churches. They love Jesus, serving Jesus all over the world. I'm not, I'm not putting everybody in the same bucket here. But those growing churches have moral compromise, which is eating them from the inside. What did Jesus say? He said, You tolerate. That woman, Jezebel. How many of you heard of Jezebel? She's a Baal worshiper. But the king of Israel, Ahab, married her. Be very careful before you marry. Ask the Lord. Are you unequally yoked? Because what she did, she didn't only emasculate him. She actually became the symbol of all that is evil. She became a, a, a symbol of moral compromise of all sorts. And why does the Lord Jesus hate the spirit of Jezebel? Listen to me. Because moral compromise inevitably going to lead to apostasy altogether. It happens, and it happened before our eyes. Some of you sitting here, you know me and I know you. We've been in situations 30 years ago, 40 years ago. We've seen it happen. And in the old days, it used to take so many generations to go from, uh, from moral compromise to apostasy. Now, with the speed of everything, it takes half a generation. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. When sexual sins are tolerated and quietly approved, it's a matter of time before the church to cease to be the church of Jesus Christ. I said some of us were in churches like that. I was in a church 30-plus years ago where they preached tolerance and grace and compassion and non-judgmentalism. Until, of course, now, it is no longer the church of Jesus Christ. Please, please hear me right. One of Satan's most effective weapons against us is our flesh. As we saw already in Balaam. Satan appeals to our flesh. Uh, he tempts to satis- tempt us to satisfy the flesh. Uh, the temptation is to set our flesh on fire. And then Satan says, mission accomplished. Here's how the spirit of Jezebel works. Listen carefully, please. Well, nobody really believed this sexual purity anymore these days. It's just, it's not, it's, not, it's not the thing people believe anymore. No one really keeps these old-fashioned values. The times have changed. How many times have you heard that? Even the laws are changed. Fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, and all of these are open sesame to apostasy. That is the spirit of Jezebel, and Jesus hates it. Here's the bad news. I always tell you the good news. Here's the bad news. Most Christians in Thyatira, they knew it. They close their ears. 
close your eyes. Who am I to rock the boat? It was wrong. But they were so worried that if they took a stand, people would leave the church. And that's why Jesus said, repent of your false tolerance. Repent of your spineless attitude. Repent of thinking that a large crowd means success in God's eyes. Otherwise, you'll suffer Jezebel's fate. But if you repent and remain steadfast, I'll give you the morning star. Revelation twenty-two sixteen tells us that Jesus is the morning star. Who would rather you have, Jesus or the approval of culture and society? Ask yourself that question. The fifth message is to the church of Sardis. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I pray to God that not a single person would be like those folks in the church of Sardis. There is nothing good that Jesus could find to say about the church of Sardis. He said, I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. One of the greatest tragedies is when a church's reputation exceeds its reality. What does it mean for the church to be alive? Listen to me very carefully, please. The first thing a live church is must live under the authority of the Word of God. Must be determined to obey the Word of God. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but we live in obedience to the Word of God. And the second thing is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. And the third thing is that the Holy Spirit must be free to operate. The Holy Spirit is your best friend. How can he be afraid of your best friend? You see, when the Holy Spirit is free to operate, he's going to convict, he's going to convert. Question. Can a dead church become alive again? Yes? Yes. That's what Jesus said. He gives him five steps to go from dead to life. Wake up and discover the reality of your spiritual death. Strengthen what remains. You say, what does that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. If the doctors are operating in the operating room, and then the patient's heart stops, what do they do? They stop everything, and they do everything possible to get the heart moving. (laughs) That's strengthening what remains. Remember what you have received from God at the very beginning. Remember the time when you gave your life to Jesus Christ and you were thrilled and you were excited. You were so much in love with Jesus. Remember that. Go back to that. The truth that you knew from the very beginning. Guard it. Protect it. That's number four. Protect what you originally received and heard. And hold on to it. And fifthly, he said, change your ways. Change your direction. Respond now to his love. Respond to his invitation. Six is the message to the church of Philadelphia. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Last message. I said something very significant about the Noah's Ark. Well, the Bible said God shut the door of the Ark 
Not Noah, not his sons. And I told you why. Now, here you get it in black and white. That God is the one in charge of the door. Nobody else. He's got it right here. Revelation 3, 7 to 13. These are the words of him who's holy. Who, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shut, no one can open. He spells it out here. Why? He is the one. In fact, Jesus here is refuting these false teachers who say that in the last day, in the day of judgment, Jesus is going to feel sorry for the people who have rejected him and he's going to let them in. They're contradicting everything Jesus said here. In the day of judgment, he is the one who's going to shut that door and no one will be able to open it. But right now, he has that door wide open. Nobody can shut it saying, come, 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 come. The door is open. Verse 8, Jesus is saying, I gave you every opportunity you have for ministry. Everything, every opportunity you have, Jesus gave you. Every opportunity he gave, he gave me. He says, I know you're weak by the world's standard, but I have given you opportunities for ministry. And if you use these opportunities, I'll bless you out of your socks. Now, that's a use of translation, but you get the meaning. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Did God bless you with time? Where are you spending it? Where are you spending it? Has God blessed you with influence? How are you using it? Did God bless you with wealth? Where are you investing it? On self or on the kingdom of God? Be faithful with what you have, is Jesus' message to the church in Philadelphia. Finally, the seventh message is the message, the letter to the church of Laodicea. As I said, if my theologian friends who believe that these are periods of time and that we're living in the church of Laodicea time, that makes me weep uncontrollably. And trust me, sometimes I do. There's not a single positive word about the church of Laodicea. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Why? Because if there's one thing that Jesus detests is lukewarmness. He detests lukewarmness. And this, is, beloved, is a picture of an average, normal, respected American evangelical church. And yet, it's neither on fire for Christ nor deadly cold. What Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church, he says, I deserve better than this insipid response. I deserve more than this half-hearted commitment. I suffered and died for you. And all you do for me is you tip your hats for me for an hour on Sunday morning. I gave my life for you, and all you give back to me is a shrug of the shoulder. Come late, leave early, and put a couple of bucks in the plate. And Either love me with white-hot intensity, 
or drop dead. Let me plead with you. If your love for Jesus is lukewarm, you need to change it and change it today. Before you get to be spat out of his mouth. Here's what Jesus said. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become really rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Isn't that amazing how the Lord Jesus takes something that is unique to that town, to that city? See, the Laodicea was prosperous economically. It was a very rich city. So much so that in 61 AD, they had a horrible earthquake, nearly destroyed everything. But they built it back so fast without any federal dollars. They got no money from Rome. They built it themselves. They had so much money. They were so powerful. They were so rich. Laodicea was renowned for two products. They were exporting all over the world. Textile and a Phrygian powder that was used as an eye salve. Ironically, the Lord uses those two things that they're exporting to the whole world and they brag about locally as the very thing that they spiritually need from Jesus. The real white garment is to cover the nakedness of their sin and it can only come from Jesus. The eye salve that can cure their spiritual blindness can only come from Jesus. Oh, but the Laodiceans already knew that. They already knew it. They are spiritually naked in spite of their textile industry. And they were spiritually blind in spite of the medicine that they sell all over the world. Jesus alone is the source of salvation, beloved. Jesus alone is the source of righteousness. Jesus alone is the source of spiritual strength. When we walk with him, and in verse 20, gives us a beautiful invitation. He said, I stand on the door and knock. Some of you might know this famous painting. Uh, It was painted by Warner Salman, who actually went to be with the Lord a few years ago. And it's a, it's a great picture, it's a great painting, where <clears throat> it shows Jesus standing, knocking on a door. And there are thorns and thistles everywhere as a symbol of our sin. There's something else you notice in that painting. There is no doorknob on the outside. The only doorknob is from the inside. Beloved, if you refuse to let Jesus in, you must bear the consequences. You have the doorknob. Invite him in. And on our part, we want to show you where the knob is (laughs) so you can open the door and invite Jesus. 